Um, we're in a series on the book of John. And before we get into that, I just want to mention a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, happy Valentine's Day. It's interesting to me as I think about this, the day that we dedicate, in a sense, to love and expressing love. We're, and I didn't plan this, we're going to discuss the greatest verse written about love in the history of the world. Um, so happy Valentine's Day. Second is we have a congregational meeting Sunday, February 21st, immediately after the service. It will be streamed. You can email us, uh, Jose or Jason, or the church, and you'll be added to the list to receive the link because the stream will be private. Uh, next thing is the real-life lock-in this weekend was postponed. It's on February Friday, February 26th from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. You can talk to Josh Cross for more information. We're still collecting, giving out and collecting baby bottles for CareNet. The bottles are up here. When the bottle is filled, you can give it to me or Jose, or you can just stick it in that. We go through that and then get them to CareNet. We'd, we'd appreciate it if you'd do that. Just put some money in it and leave it for us, right? I don't, that just didn't sound right. Okay. Uh, it's going to go to CareNet, honest. There's no payments on my cars that are going to come out of it. So anything like that. Um, but if you want to help me with my, that'd be okay. So, uh, golly, I'm nervous today. I don't know what's going on. Everything's falling apart. Forget the mic. Forget, don't turn it on. Everything. <clears throat> and uh, we have prayer requests in the back. If you would like someone to pray for you, if you'd like, uh, we have some people who pray. You can do it. You can do it anonymously. You can sign your name. Uh, there's a little basket there, and there's some three-by-five cards. You write it and put it in there. And then that goes to those people, specific people who have who have uh, who have said they will will dedicate time to pray for, pray for these prayer requests. We'd love for you to do that. Our uh, our nursery for babies and small is going to open at the beginning of March. So that is the the next phase kind of step we're taking. And then one last thing, I'm a little I'm kind of excited about this. Um, I, I uh, through through some people I got uh, a uh, ad. Uh, and I forget what, the, what word I'm looking for, but anyway, there's a book being written that is just a series of devotionals for Easter. So it's only about uh, three or four weeks of devotionals, but it's geared towards pre-Easter and then post-Easter. And uh, some of the writers that they've gotten to do this are exceptional. I'm really excited about it. They are exceptional writers. So here's the deal. We're going to just buy a truckload of those and give them out free. They'll be coming in the next three to four weeks as we get ready for Easter, and we will just be handing them out free to encourage you to make Easter a special time of spending time with God, and uh, these will be geared towards that. Each day we'll have a specific uh, part of Easter that they want to talk about and, and write about, and uh, I read through some of them, they give you a sample, and they were, they were excellent. And so um, be looking for that, just letting you know. We would love to get that to you. No strings attached. We're just handing these books out for free. And, um, and for those at home who are streaming with us, if you want, you just let us know. We'll either drop it off or mail it to you. We'll get it to you somehow uh, because we really feel like this is important. All right. We are in the book of John, and today we're looking at the greatest answer to the greatest need of, of mankind. Um, and I'm going to read the passage to you, and then we're going to just dive in. This is from John chapter 3, and it's verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be, may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. All right, so we've been in, in John. We've, we've, we've looked at chapter 1 and the, the introduction and John the Baptist saying, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist saying, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist who got the focus right. He, the focus wasn't on him. The focus was on Jesus. And I still love that thing. John the Baptist was a Levite. He was of the priestly line. What was one of the big things they were trained to do? One of the big things they were trained to do was to recognize lambs who were worthy of sacrifice. Not just any lamb could come for a sin sacrifice. It had to be what was called a spotless lamb. No outward deformities, no, no, um, no disease, no nothing. So John was trained in this. And so what did he do? He exercised his training and he looked and he said, Behold, here's the ultimate lamb the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who doesn't just take away sins temporarily, but takes away sins for good. And so we see that with John. And, we, and, and then into chapter 2, as Jesus started talking to some of the disciples, and at the very end of chapter 2, where he makes this incredible statement to Nathaniel, where he says, I am the bridge to heaven. I am, I am it. He, he hearkens back to a story they well know of, the, of Jacob when Jacob had that vision of that causeway going up into heaven. And God speaking to Jacob and said, now I'm going to bridge it. I'm going to bridge this gap between heaven and earth. And Jesus comes and says, by the way, I'm the bridge. It is me personally. He makes this astounding claim. So we get into chapter 3, and as we've worked through this Looking at, at some of the great themes that are going on, and even today as we sang, I just kept going, these are the themes of John. These are the themes of John, love and light and darkness and you know all these things. And so on Valentine's Day, we're going to talk about this verse, John 3.16. You know, I was thinking, I remember when I was a kid when, um, when um, the Snoopy cartoons first started coming out, and I remember one vividly because I didn't quite understand it. I was a kid, and uh, I didn't understand that it was an allusion to a biblical thing because I wasn't being raised in a, in a Christian home. And it was Snoopy sitting on his, uh, his, uh, his doghouse, and he's freezing, and Linus comes up and says, Greetings, Snoopy. Be warmed and be filled. And then he walks away. And, and then Lucy comes along and says, Yeah, Snoopy, be warmed and be filled. And then somebody else comes along, Charlie Brown, somebody else. And then the last is just him with a big question mark over his head as he shivers. You know, and, and the Bible talks about this. People who say, be warmed and be filled. But the idea is that the words alone don't do anything. If I say, be warmed and be filled, it doesn't make you filled. It doesn't make you warm. Words of love and concern are not enough. They're important. But on their own, they're not enough. Concrete expressions of love have to back up vocal expressions of love, of care. They fill them with meaning and power. The words are filled by the actions that follow. And the words take power because of the actions that illustrate them. 
And so I know for me, um, growing up in a home, my father uh, was, was an officer and he was a strict strict uh, disciplinarian. He was military and, and all this. And so, I, I mean, I kind of knew, I knew my dad loved me. I mean, he, we got fed, we had clothes, but he never really articulated it very much, if at all. I mean, I have no memory of my father telling me he loved me. And I can remember as my wife and I started planning kids and having kids, it was like, I'm going to correct that. I'm going to tell my kids I love them so much that they'll get sick of it right? But I also knew it has to be backed up with actions. Otherwise, the words after a while just ring hollow. One without the other leaves a hole that cannot be filled. And so with our kids, we tried to, as we had uh, times of discipline, to make sure that discipline was covered with love and that love was the understanding that was behind all of it. In today's passage, which includes John 3.16, which is probably the most famous verse in the world of all the Bible verses, right? And, and as I was studying for this and preparing for this, one of the things I thought about is that everybody knows John 3.16. It's like, Bob, what are you going to say? The people go, knew that, knew that, knew that, old hat, you know, thanks, Bob, but, you know, that kind of a thing. How do you talk about a verse that everybody knows? How do you talk about a verse that everybody's heard multiple sermons, maybe even more than multiple sermons, lots and lots of sermons? So I'm going to try it. Here we go. We're going to talk about the love that acts. Because what, we, what I want to do is I want to frame this verse in that understanding of words of love and then concrete actions of love. That's so important for us to understand. So when we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have ever, eternal life, we have to understand the background, everything that's going on. One of the things I want to do is I want to break this verse down. I don't do this usually, but we're gonna, I want us to go just word by word through this verse. All right? So let's look at the first word, for. Now, little grammar, here you go. For is always something of explanation. It's always a term of explanation. It pulls down a previous thought to give this thought explanation and meaning, right? Okay, so let's look at the previous thought to see what's being pulled down by the word for. He had just said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man shall be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have may have eternal life in him. So there's the previous statement. Just as the snake was lifted up, Jesus has to be lifted up. Why? So everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For, now here's the explanation. It's going to give an explanation of why, what, what that means. Now, I think you, probably you notice here, there seems to be, and we always can struggle this as we study the book of John. When is Jesus speaking? When is John speaking? All right, but we notice that John closed off the previous verse with quotation marks in verse 15. Now he just starts 16. He just starts it. And I think this is where John begins to explain and help us fill out what Jesus said. Four fills out the, 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 the reason why Jesus had to be lifted up. What does it tell us? It gives us the motivation. What is the motivation for Jesus coming. So for, the second word is God, who is the person acting, who is the person who is being motivated. And then we have the word so. 
Let me just pull back there so we follow along on the screen. The word so is setting us up for something. It sets up, it sets the scene, it sets the table as it were. God so, and it gives a depth of meaning, loved. This is the love that acts. This is what the Bible in the Greek is. This is the agape love. And you've heard a lot about the love. I've talked about different types of love and what they, the different nuances of each one. But this, this, more than anything, agape love is a love that acts. It shows the depth of the love by the quality, by the immensity of the action, the, the, the hugeness of what God does shows us the depth of his love. Now, in 1 John... John continues writing about this. He says, God is love. We studied that a few years ago when we went through the book of 1 John. God is love. Not, not God has the quality of love. Not God's characteristic. One of God's characteristics is love. John says, no, God is love. He is at the core of his being. He is love. It's not that he acts lovingly. I mean, he does. But it's because he is love. Everything flows from that. In fact, there's only three times that's used like that. John John says God is love. Uh, John says God is light. And also we see Jesus, uh, and, and in other places, God is life. Love, light, and life. That's the core of God's being. Everything else flows from that. Yes, yes, God does get angry, but he gets angry because he loves. He doesn't get angry because he's PO'd. He doesn't get angry because he's upset with people. And he gets so mad, and I just want to bonk them. They're so stupid. He does, that's not how God is. So God does not say, well, I have to love them, so I better do something. He's not saying that. He doesn't say, regretfully, this is what I have to do. I don't want to do it, but I have to do it because there's no other way of saving these low lives. He doesn't say that. No, at his essence, his core, it springs naturally from him. It is not forced in any way. Now, I want to read you um, from a, a Greek scholar, probably one of the greatest Greek scholars in the world, Kenneth Wiest. And Kenneth Weiss says, Agape speaks of a love that is awakened by a sense of value in an object that causes one to prize it, causes one to love it. It's a love that is awakened by saying, this is so important to me. He goes on, he said, it springs from an apprehension of the preciousness. My precious. That's probably not a good illustration of it. Of the preciousness. Of, it just came in my head. And why should my mouth stop talking? The preciousness of the object. It is a love of esteem and approbation. The quality of this love. Okay, listen to this. This is so key. The quality of this love is determined by the character of the one who loves, not by the object loved. The quality of the love is because God is love, not because we're loving or we are lovely. Not because we deserve to be loved. The quality of the love is determined by the character of the one loving. That's what's so key. There's so many ways that works out in our lives. You know, we talk about faith sometimes. And it's not the strength of your faith. It's the object you have as the, the object of your faith. The quality of that object. That's what's so important. The man whose son who was asking his son to be healed, and Jesus said, you know, I can do anything. He says, oh, Lord, I believe you. Help my unbelief. He admitted he was doubting. He admitted he was struggling. He admitted that his faith was not that strong. But it's not the strength of his faith. It's who he's putting his faith in. That's the key. The quality of this love is determined by the character of the one who loves the character of the one who loves. So he says, for God so loved. 
the world. John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now this, we have to understand how strange this would sound to the Jews. I mean, this is part of, in, in this study, a lot of what we've been talking about is going back into the culture, understanding the culture. What did Jews think at that time? What did Jews believe at that time? And what is so great is the Jews were pro- prolific writers. They wrote stuff like, we know what they thought back then. We know what they were expecting the Messiah to be like. We know these things because they wrote them down over and over. They were prolific writers. And so the Jews believed that God loved them. They're the special ones, the ones God loves. Then there's the world, the rest of the world. God does not love the world. They they even had a saying, I mentioned this to you before. At the time of Jesus, it was a pretty famous saying that, that, that the, the angels rejoice when a sinner goes to hell. And then Jesus comes along and says, there's rejoicing when a sinner repents and goes to heaven. He totally flips it because that was their mindset. So we have to understand that. We don't, have to, we don't agree with it. We just have to understand it. So when he says... For God so loved the world, for the Jews, that would be an unbelievable thought. Because that would imply that they're about to lose their specialness. And that would be devastating. This is why if you study and you see in the early church the problems that they had with Jewish believers who came into the churches and said, yes, yes, it's good you accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you, you need to follow the dietary restrictions. But you need to get circumcised. Yikes. But you need to do this, right? You need to do this. All those things, you still have to do them. Why? Because the Jews said, we don't want to lose our specialness. We're the special ones. Follow us. Do what we do. And so it would be devastating to them to think that God loved the whole world because they were desperately trying to keep their specialness and their uniqueness. And so he loved the whole world. God so loved the whole world that, that he gave. This is all one word. It shows the bestowing of a gift. And in the Greek, it's the bestowing of a gift from someone in a superior position to someone in an inferior position, which makes, which makes the gift so special because I don't have to give you this gift. You're less than me. I'm going to give you this gift. So it's this gift that comes totally undeserved. It's a gift that underscores. It underscores God's grace which describes giving us what we do not deserve. God's grace is we don't get what we deserve. That's grace. And it also underscores his mercy, that we get something we don't deserve. We don't get what we do deserve. We get what we don't deserve. For God so loved that he gave. And then here it says his one and only son. Many translations um, translate this, only begotten son. That's a, that's a, it's a difficult word. It's actually two Greek words that have been put together, monogenes, and it's uh, from the word mono meaning only and genos meaning a kind. And it emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus. Everything about Jesus is unique and one of a kind, right? That's what it emphasizes. It doesn't emphasize this, the, 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 uh, how Jesus came about. It emphasizes how different he is. God gave his one and only son, the unique one, the one of a kind, that 
And here we have the word that again. And this, this time with that, it's going to show us, we, we, we saw earlier we were being shown motivation. Now we're going to show the purpose. It introduces something that's a purpose or a goal. That whoever. You know, I was looking at this and I was thinking, what can I say about whoever? And I mean, the word is so self-evident. Anybody. What, do you, what a unique thing. Anybody. It's a simple word. It has its very simple meaning. Doesn't need much explanation. And it has incredible consequences. Incredible consequences. Anyone, anyone, anyone. No one's left out. Anybody can have this. The gates have been thrown open for everyone. And so he says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him. Now, this is, this is that word belief. Belief and faith are closely linked throughout the Bible. And, and, and we're going to talk about it in, at a later time a little more deeply. But it, it has this idea for, for the Jews. This was very important to them. Belief or faith was this idea that I would investigate something. I would look at it seriously. And then I come to a decision. I believe this is true. Then, on the basis of the fact that I think this is true, how does it affect my life? How does my life change? This is why, you know, there's so much uh, uh, tension for some people about the book of James where he says works, uh, uh, faith without works is dead. But James was simply being Jewish. He was saying if it's real faith, it's going to change the way you live. It doesn't have anything to do with your salvation in the sense of it, it accomplishes your salvation. It just is the natural outflowing of deciding Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died on a cross for me. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. He's the Savior. I'm going to follow him. Now, if I'm going to follow him, how is that going to affect my life? How is my life going to change? It's just the natural outflow. We have in our day, and I, you know, we've, I've harped on this, I sound like an old man, you kids these days. Um, we have in our day this kind of belief that, that it's just an intellectual thing. I, I, people say, well, two and two is four. Yes, I agree. Well, Jesus, Son of God. Yep, Jesus, Son of God. Okay, fine. And, and off you go. But, but for the Jews and for Jesus, they would have been like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not belief. That's not belief. Belief means... You change. We took our kids camping a few times. I've said this before, camping is a terrible thing. But afterwards, you look back on it fondly, right? And, and, we, and we, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a uh, recovering fire starter, bug, fire bug. And I love starting fires. I loved it when I was a kid. I got in a lot of trouble for it, and I, I love it now. Love having bonfires in our backyard. Love burning our Christmas tree. Love going out the day before the collect trash people come and picking up desks and chairs and burning them in my backyard. It's just a, just a ton of fun. Um, I'm realizing now that I'm putting this out on the Internet and public, and there's probably be some firemen at my house soon. But I remember one of the first times one of our kids, I was like, no, no, that's hot, hot. You know, you go through all that. Hot, ouch, ooh, you know. And they don't learn. They don't learn until one time you turn around, they go, is it really hot? And then, yeah, and they cry, and they've got a blister, you know, and, oh, look what me, me and old Mr. Heat did. And, and, uh, you, you, and then what happens? The way they treat fire changes from that day on. It changes. They suddenly believe that it's hot. 
like they really believe that it's hot. It's not just an intellect. It's like, oh, well, dad's telling me, so I got to say yes. Now it's like, man, that hurt. And the next day we have a fire. Do they go, yep, let's try again. Dirt. You know, some kids maybe do, but uh, that's a sign of something else. So they don't do it because why? Because they've learned they've, and, and their actions now flow out of the belief that they have. We do this all the time. It's true about us in so many things. It's not a mere ex, uh, uh, intellectual assent to something. It's the idea that my life has to change because of it. That's biblically what belief is. And so if God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, now that's the object of belief. The enormity of this verse demands that you take it seriously and look at the evidence. You may say, and I talk to people sometimes, say, I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe. Okay, I said, but Jesus makes some claims that you really ought to investigate because they're enormous claims. You know, and C.S. Lewis talks about it. We've talked about it. They're not claims like Jesus doesn't claim to be a good teacher. Calling Jesus a good teacher is such an insult. He doesn't claim to be a good teacher. He says, I'm God. I'm the light of the world. Takes away the sins of the world. He makes outrageous claims. They deserve to be looked into. You may not, you may not believe them. That's fine, but you deserve, you deserve to look into them. You, you, they deserve to be looked into. He says shall not perish. Now, it's interesting here because the word perish can be used in a lot of different ways. Like it's used of, of putting, um, it's used of putting new wine in old wineskins. When you put new wine in old wineskins, the new wine tends to expand, but the wineskins are old, so they're set, they can't expand, and they burst. And it, that's the word that he, that's used for perishing here. Sometimes, sometimes it actually means death, and then going to you know meet with God afterwards, but it also it also has, and I think this is a this is good for us to think about here. It has not the sense of annihilation or cease to exist, but to cease to have opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which one is created. To cease to have the opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which one is created, to experience ruin, to become. I mean, this is like the worst thing you could ever to become useless. Useless. What a horrible thing to have happen to a human being to become useless. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but man, thank God for the buts in the Bible. That didn't come out the way I thought it would either. But changes everything. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I know right now, my wife is at home going, oh, I can't believe it. Oh, I can't believe I married that guy. All right? It's a term of contrast. It wants, you to, it wants you to look at two things and contrast them. It wants you to think them through. This or this. This or this. Or this, not this. It's, it's a contrast. It's a word that does that. And it says, you know, have eternal life. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's it. That's the contrast. Here we have the purpose that's spoken of earlier. Not perish. When we talked about that purpose. Not perish and have life. We, we, last week I, I talked a good bit about eternal life and, and what that means. 
the idea that it's a quality of life, not necessarily the length of life, the idea that it brings peace in our lives, peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with others, peace with the world that he's created. All this peace that's been brought because it is, is wrapped up in the meaning of this word eternal life. And it's life in the absolute sense, spiritual life. It is the life we were made for. It goes beyond just our mere physical breathing bios. It moves into the Greek zoe, this life that's greater than, and it's greater than that. And he says, that's the life. That's eternal life. So in John 3.16, this is the answer to the question that God had to pose. How do I eradicate sin without destroying all of creation that has been tainted by it? How do I deal with sin without just wiping everything out? How am I going to do it? And he tells us, John says, for God so loved the world. He was so wrapped up in the world and people that he created, who he created in his image, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this brings up objections, and the rest of the passage does too. Well, someone can say, and, and I've had this talking sometimes with people, I like, I like the idea that God is love. I don't like the idea of perishing. I don't like the idea of anger. I don't like the idea of condemnation. Condemnation is so yesterday, right? I mean, it's just so old-fashioned, this idea of condemnation. In the ancient times, the idea of a God who was angry was no problem to anyone. All the gods got angry all the time, and often for the slightest of things. Um, this week, I, I got, this will surprise you. You'll be so blown away. I got on this rabbit trail, um, and, and I was think, reading about this, and I started reading about Artemis, the goddess, especially celebrated by the Ephesians, the temple to Artemis in Ephesus uh, in Asia Minor, was the second of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was gigantic. It was beautiful. It was incredible. And it was the temple to Artemis, who was a goddess of a number of things, uh, but one of them was life. She was the goddess of life. And Artemis would get angry like that. And so what would happen is, one of the things that they believed was if you don't pay your dues, your tithes, your whatever, whatever is due to Artemis on, 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 a, on a regular basis, Artemis will be angry at you over money. She'll be angry at you. And what will she do? She will curse you in childbirth. You will die in childbirth or your child will die in childbirth. If you're old, she'll curse your daughter or your granddaughter because she gets angry when people don't give her the money she wants. And so that's why we come to a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that is an incredibly difficult passage to understand. Paul talking about 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is written to Timothy in Ephesus, where the temple of Artemis is at. And Paul talks about women will be saved in childbirth. And theologians have struggled with that for years it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that we've understood exactly what was going on in Ephesus by some of the recent discoveries and papyrus that have come out, the recent documents. What is he telling them? You've come out of that cult. You will not be killed in childbirth. Artemis does not have that power. Your children will not die because of Artemis. 
Don't live in that fear. Don't live in that fear. See, that fear was totally common in the ancient world. Totally common. Because the gods got angry. They got angry at the drop of a hat on a whim, and no one could be sure. So you were always doing things simply to placate the gods, just to keep them out of your life. And along comes Jesus, and he says, I'm God, and I want to be in your life. I want to be an intimate part of your life. I want to live inside you. I want to guide you. I want to be a part of you day by day, every day of your life. I want to bring you a joy that you can't experience. I want to bring you a peace that's beyond comprehension. I want to bring all of this into your life, a purpose and a meaning. I want to bring eternal life into your life because that's what you're made for. It's the exact opposite of what everyone else believed. That's why for the Romans and the Greeks, they were open to all kinds of gods, but they were not open to the God of the Bible. We have no history of purges of, of, of the followers of Artemis, the followers of Apollo, the followers of Zeus. The follow we have no history of purges of those people. What do we have? We have a history over and over and over of purges of Christians because their God does not fit. Our God does not fit. He will not fit. And so in those days, an angry God, that's no problem. Everything was about you. Everything was about your family, about your clan, your family, your clan. You, if, if you could abuse others, it was okay. If you could get away with it, it's fine. You could enslave others. If you could get away with it, it's fine because it's all about your family. It's all about your clan. And suddenly the Bible changes everything. When somebody says, I just like the God of love. I don't want to have any uh, perishing anger. I don't like that stuff. My question is, where did you get the idea of a God of love? Where did you get the idea that all people have inherent worth? I'm reading a book. It's, it's, it's a really good book. It's called Dominion by Tom Holland. He's a pretty famous historian. I mean, in historian, the historian world. He's won a number of prizes for a number of his books about the ancient Near East. And the subtitle of his book is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know if he's coming from that angle. He's just a historian. And, and I like it because if he is a Christian, you can't tell by the way he's writing his history book. And I like that. I like that his that prejudices aren't slipping in or anything like that. But he wrote this, that human beings have rights, that they are born equal, that they are owed sustenance and shelter and refuge from persecution these were never self-evident truths. They were never truths that people generally believed. These came from Christians. That's where they came from. They came from the Bible. And so we have John 3.16, a message that has changed the world. It changes human hearts, and it brings a message. Everyone in this world has inherent worth and value. Everyone in this world is loved by God. How much does he love them? Enough to send his son. And it's not because he works it up. It's because he is love at his core. And it just flows naturally. So, this is the love that acts, and now we have the need of man. 
verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So it starts with another four, pulling down that information to, to now to bring it to a fuller explanation. It has in the middle of verse 17, a, 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 a but to, to change the look both ways. Look at this. Look at the, the uh, contrast. And so this goes into a little bit of history. Now, what, what did the Jews expect from the Messiah? Again, we know what they expected. They wrote it down. They're very, they're very good about that. They expected that the Messiah would come and he would pass judgment on people. He would destroy the Romans. He would subjugate the Gentiles, at least, perhaps destroy them, and then punish all evildoers and unclean people. The only Jews who would get punished were the evildoers and the unclean people. The rest of the world was going to suffer horrific punishment. When the Messiah comes, that's what's going to happen. Now, that's what they believed. They were really bought into this. So think about this. That's what they're expecting. They're beginning to think, this guy, he's special. You know, Nicodemus, we know you're from God. We know you're from God. So what are you going to do? And this is why his words were so jarring to them. You know, I mean, do you ever kind of on the down low, like you don't want to voice it, but you kind of go, if I was one of the disciples, I would have understood and believed. I wouldn't be like those lamos. They were bums, man. They were terrible. But if I had been there, I mean, if I'd seen the water into wine, what? Right? We think that. We think that. But you have to understand, they're fighting something that they've believed their whole life. And Jesus' words are rocking. He's rocking their world. Three times he says, this person has great faith. Now, think about what the Jews were expecting. We just talked about that. Think about what they were expecting to happen. Destroy the Romans, subjugate or destroy the Gentiles, evildoers, unclean people, kill them. That's what the the Messiah was going to do. First person, great faith. I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. A Roman officer. This guy's got more faith than a lot of you. Next one, a woman with an issue of blood. She was unclean. She had this, and they believe, if, I mean, if she had this issue of blood, obviously she's a sinner because God's punishing her for being a sinner. And thirdly, which goes against the grain for them, she's a woman. And Jesus said, you have great faith. Third one, a Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile. And she, Jesus goes back and forth with her in this interesting, difficult conversation that's a little bit tense, but a little bit joyful, and his disciples are going, let's send her away. Let's get her, you know, boot, let's get her out of here. She's wailing about her daughter. We don't care about her stupid daughter, this Gentile. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, she's got great faith. This is a good example for you. What an amazing thing. He's constantly, constantly shaking them, rocking them, 
just, you know, just dealing with them in such a forceful way. And the idea that Jesus would be lifted up, Nicodemus would have known that in some way this, this involves the cross because it's this, uh, lifted up is, is the word they used often for someone put on a cross. And so in, in earlier when he says that the Son of Man must be lifted up like the snake, Nicodemus would have known, wait, man, what are you talking about? Because the idea that someone, especially if he's God, could die, on a cross, the worst thing, they, they felt like the cross was the worst thing, partly because of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is the person who hangs on a tree, on wood. That person is cursed. How could he be? This is crazy talk. And Jesus came to save everyone. And so the purpose here, why he came, he came for saving, for delivering, for rescuing. But coming and offering salvation puts the question of what are we being saved from? And that's verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Condemnation or to condemn is not why Jesus came. It's the problem he came to solve. And when we, we believe, the Word of God tells us we are freed from condemnation. Therefore, in Romans 8, Paul hits on this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is the freedom we have in Christ. In verse 18, he uses the word believe three times. He wants to put an incredible emphasis on it. And he explains what's going on. Not believing brings condemnation. Uh, the word believed and the word condemnation there at the end is in what's called the perfect tense. It means there's a completed action and the results just keep going and going and going so that when a person is condemned, the action is completed, they've been condemned, but the results keep going and going and going. For a person who believes, they believe at a moment in their life and then it just keeps going and going and going. It's this idea that it follows them. It's with them all the time. We don't like talking about condemnation in our day. The idea of condemnation is repugnant. But understand something, the word condemnation simply means this, that there are standards. That's what it means. There are standards. The only way condemnation happens is if there's morals and there's values and there's ethics and they have been broken. Now, in our day, everybody agrees we need morals. Everybody agrees we need ethics. The problem is whose morals, whose ethics? And this passage is simply telling us that God has values. He has ethics. He has morals and standards. Everybody agrees that we need them. We just don't like his. That's what happens. But his are not based on a whim. His are based on his subtle opposition to evil, his hatred of sin. Why? Because of what sin does to the crown jewel of his creation, mankind. Sin ruins us. You know, if someone hits your car... You may know that person. You may like that person. But someone still has to pay for the car to be fixed. The debt has to be paid. And what happens? We want to go our own way. We want to be in charge. We are lawbreakers. And God is opposed to this. Therefore, there is condemnation until the debt's paid. So God's anger, we talked about this, arises out of his love. God is angry. There is condemnation. Why? Because he loves people. Because he loves truth. Because he loves righteousness. See, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate, the greatest form of hate, is indifference. To just not care. 
you want to hurt somebody the worst way you can, just don't care anymore. Just don't care. God is angry at sin because it destroys the people that are made in his image. And he can't just wink at it and pass over it. Why? Because that would be indifference. He would be hateful in that. Now, God's not actively punishing sins necessarily. That will ultimately come in the final day of judgment. But that doesn't mean people are getting away with sin. You know, because the, the way the world is set up, oftentimes we pay the consequences of our sin, the logical consequences of our actions. And the more you move against God's law, the more that happens, and the more you move against yourself when you do it. If you tell a lie, do you, do you suddenly the next day, you know, you just get real sick or you're walking along and a brick falls on your head as punishment? No. No. But here's what happens. The more you do it, the more people stop trusting you and stop listening to you. If you're bitter, the more you give into it, you become more cynical. And ultimately, that will affect your health. If you're selfish, it destroys relationships around you. And it causes those close to you to begin to pull away. And it goes on and on. Why? Because these are the natural consequences that have been set up in this world when we break the law, when we break the standards, the values. And we see that happening all around us. The last thing in 19 to 21, I'm just going to mention this very briefly. I've run on a bit here is the purpose of light. And he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plain, may seem plainly. What they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, this is interesting. All throughout the book of John, John uses courtroom language. Here it says, here's the verdict. Here's the verdict. Now, uh, the verdict, that word verdict, really, it, what, it, what it literally means is, is a scrutiny of conduct that then leads to an, an act of judgment. A scrutiny of conduct that leads to an act of judgment. And so he uses courtroom language. He, language. he also uses the word light a lot. It's a recurring theme. In 1 John, he says, this is the message we've heard from him and I declare to you, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. And so here he's telling them, if you live by the truth, you're in the light. When you come under it, living by the truth is coming under the truth. Living by the truth is yielding to the truth. Living by the truth is understanding that even if I don't like what the truth says, I have to recognize it's the truth and act accordingly. I'll be honest with you. I don't like, always like everything the Bible says. Some things I wish it didn't say. But it's the truth. Somebody asked me about that one time and I said, this Bible... This word, it changed my life. It changed my life. I can't pick and choose because it's the truth, and it changed me from the inside out. So living by the truth, he says, is coming under it. It's yielding to it. And God is light. He's the great revealer. By his very nature, he shows reality. What happens in the dark? I, I, I uh, mentioned to you guys, I'm a, big, I'm, a, I'm a chicken. I'm a big scaredy cat. So I don't like the dark that much. I love, I would much rather sleep with a little light on, but my, my wife loves the darkness, you know, go figure. Um, but I don't like the dark, right? Why? Because there's been too many times. I mean, going into my, when my, one of our kids was little Reagan, and she had all her dolls and she started crying and I'm going across her room and it's like, ow, 
crap, it was a doll in the world. Why do you leave a doll? How gross. So by the time I get to her, it's like, I'm so mad at you, you know, because I, I injure myself getting, I want the light on, because then I see the light comes on, and go, oh, doll, 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 you know, knife, you know, duh, duh, duh. I, I, I can pick out the stuff so I don't step on them. Light reveals, darkness hides, light brings reality. Darkness hides reality. God is light. And so this is the key. If I want to walk with God, if I want to know him, God is saying, God is saying, I want to tell you something about me. This might be a deal breaker for you, but I'm light, man. I'm going to show the light. I'm going to, sh- I'm going to, your stuff is going to come out. I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to love you anyways, but I'm going to show it to you so you'll start changing. I make jokes. I shouldn't sometimes. I, I love my wife. When I started dating my wife, um, after about a, one or two dates, she just said, I'm going to tell you something. I've been through a couple of disappointing relationships. I'm tired of masks. I'm tired of games. I'm tired of pretending. I'm tired of trying to be someone that I'm not. And if that's not what you want, let's end this now. Save us both some time and save you a lot of money because I'm not cheap, right? Okay, she didn't say the part about money, but, uh, but the rest she said. And I'm going to tell you something. It was like the third or fourth date, and I'm like, this is the one I want. I want openness. I want honesty. I want bringing things to light because that's the only way it's going to work. And God says, I will expose things. Are you ready? Are you willing? It is my nature. It is my essence. I am light. I expose the truth. As a Christian, light brings us closer, not farther away. We say to ourselves, God still sees my, he sees my sin and he still loves me. I'm amazed at the depth of his love. Because that's the path of joy. God sees who I really am. And now in Christ, there is no condemnation, no fear of judgment, no fear of death, no fear of the future, no fear of what people may think or what people may say. No fear, a confidence, not in my ability, but in God's ability. Paul said, if God can be, if God's for us, who can be against us? Dude, we got, you know, we got a royal flush, man. We got the whole thing. We win every time. Jesus has done it. He's done it for us. I was thinking about this. When the light exposes my sin and the inner voice starts accusing me and starts saying, you're worthless, you're good for nothing. Jesus says, you're my love. I love you. Come to me. I bore the blame. I give you acceptance and peace in the midst of this. I love it sometimes when we sing, lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. It's just all love and acceptance because of what Jesus has done. There's there's a welcoming there. And we want that here. Everybody's welcome. We say all the time, everybody's welcome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, the truth of it, the power of it. Help us, Lord, to submit to the truth and to use the power for your glory. And as we do that, you are blessed. We experience the joy of doing what we were made for. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for coming. We really do not take that for granted and love having you here with us. To everyone at home, 
Thanks for joining us with this. We appreciate and we look forward to the day when we can all be back together safely. God bless you and you are dismissed.